Good morning. How many of you remember when Mount St. Helens erupted? Can I see your hands? Boy, this is a, a younger crowd than I thought it might be. <laughs> Micah thinks that I am ancient because I can remember when Mount St. Helens erupted. I was nine years old, uh, and I recently finished reading a book. Thank you, Simon, for the book. <laughs> Just finished reading a book, uh, Footprints in the Ash, The Explosive Story of Mount St. Helens. This is written by John Morris and Stephen Austin. And they are scientists at the Institute for Creation Research. <clears throat> These men studied Mount St. Helens before, during, and after the May 18, 1980 eruption. What they found was fascinating. One thing that they discovered is while there was a, a tremendous volcanic devastation, most of the damage was, was water-related. I'm going to turn there, read you a brief excerpt from the book. It's hard for me to fathom the, uh, the power, the tremendous force that's released in a volcano. <clears throat> Most of the damage was done as the glaciers on the mountain's peak melted and descended catastrophically to the plains below. As that melted ice cascaded down the mountain, it removed trees, boulders, and animals. It eroded canyons and uprooted the forest. In short, it ravaged the entire area. One mud flow followed another until a series of pancake-like layers of mud and rock had been deposited in the lowlands and in the drainage basin below. These dynamic water processes added to the avalanche and airfall deposits, which together totaled up to 600 feet of stratified sediments containing dead plants and animals, some of which are now fossilizing. In a very short period of time, widespread and thorough devastation reworked a vast area. <clears throat> and Mount St. Helens is on a scale of volcanoes, Mount St. Helens was a very small, a tiny volcano. Um, by way of comparison, you say the, the last time the volcano erupted in the Yellowstone National Park area, it was over 2,000 times greater than Mount St. Helens, over 2,000 times larger explosion. It's hard to comprehend. So that small volcano devastated over 200 square miles. <clears throat> In studying Mount St. Helens' eruption, creation scientists observed drastic changes to the landscape that occurred in just hours, in some cases, in days, in other cases. But these were things that evolutionary scientists say would require millions and millions of years to accomplish. <clears throat> The authors of this book say they were able to, what they were able to observe at Mount St. Helens in a short time helped them understand a little better the types of things that happened during the global flood recorded in Genesis. Reading this book sent me back to Genesis. I wanted to go back and see, read God's record of what happened. You know, there's evidence for the biblical global flood all around the world. Uh, there are fossils of sea creatures in the walls of the Grand Canyon. 
and on the tops of mountains, of all places. I could uh, go into a long list of other things that I won't. Over 200 cultures around the world have global flood stories. Many of these are quite twisted and far from accurate, but there is a reason that so many different cultures have flood stories. And we see the real story here in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, 6, 7, 8. <clears throat> why do people today, why do evolutionists deny the biblical account of how God saved Noah through the flood? I'd like to suggest that it's because there's a desire to not be accountable to the God who caused it. Almighty God, the creator of all things, caused the global flood because of man's sin. Satan doesn't want us to be reminded that God will judge sin. Instead, Satan blinds people's minds and has them explain away clear evidence of a global flood. Just out of curiosity, I did a Google search on Noah's Ark just to see what would come up. It was very interesting. I'd, of course, the first thing that showed up was uh, the Ark Encounter in Kentucky and a number, of other, a number of other things that I expected, but I was surprised by one. I, I have the man's name, John A. Moore, but I forget what uh, institute, where he is in California. He's an evolutionary scientist. Across, the header across the top of his webpage says that he supports good evolutionary education. Um, <clears throat> I started to read his article, and I read, and read, and read, and I looked over on the side to see how far I've got to go, and I couldn't believe it. I wasn't a quarter of the way through, and I had read pages. So I, uh, I gave up on reading it, but I want to read you a short quote from him. found it very interesting. This is John Moore, evolutionary scientist. As we shall see, he's out to prove that this did not happen. As we shall see, the story of the Great Flood and the Voyage of the Ark, as expounded by modern creationists, contain so many incredible violations of the laws of nature that it cannot possibly be accepted by any thinking person. Despite ingenious efforts to lend a degree of plausibility to the tale, nothing can be salvaged without the direct and constant intervention of the deity. I'd like to say I agree with his last statement. <laughs> He's right that it required the direct and constant intervention of God to bring Noah through the global flood. He's right about that. He's so close to the truth <clears throat> that wants to deny God and accountability to him. I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 6. It's a very familiar story to all of you. I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis 6, 5 through 22, and then I'll be reading part of chapter 7. I believe it's important for us to read it as God had recorded. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, 
and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark. And you shall furnish it to a cubit from, the out, from above. And set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself and bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of creeping things of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all God commanded him, so he did. <clears throat> what do you think was the hardest thing Noah faced? In building the ark. Here God tells him what's going to happen and tells him to build an ark. What do you think was the most difficult thing Noah faced? I was thinking about that, trying to put myself in Noah's shoes. And if God told you the end of the world as you know it is happening in 120 years, you have this much time to prepare, and here's what I want you to do. And he gave him specifics on what he wants him to build. Do you think designing it and getting all the materials was the tough part? Or was it enduring the community's ridicule? I'm sure there was that. If the earth was wicked, and if the thoughts were wicked continually, and here's a righteous man building a ship, because of floods coming and the world's never seen anything like it, I'm sure there was ridicule. Or was it convincing his family? that this was God's idea and not his? Or was it simply trusting God to come through according to the plan? God doing what he said he would do. I suspect all of those things were challenges for him, or they would be for me. <clears throat> I want to continue reading. I'm going to switch and... Read the next part from the New Living. Going to Genesis chapter 7. 
Genesis chapter 7, I'm picking up in verse 11 and reading through 24. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their wives. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating and for sacrifice and those who were not, along with all the birds and the small animals that scurry along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. When Noah was... Oh, I see, I started earlier than I planned. That's okay. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty tor torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. That very day, Noah had gone into the boat with his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. With them in the boat were pairs of every kind of animal, domestic and wild, large and small, along with the birds of every kind. Two by two, they came into, boat, into the boat, representing every living thing that breathes. A male and a female of each kind entered, just as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord closed the door behind them. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground and lifting, lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the, flood, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on earth, rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks. All living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all people. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and birds of the sky, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. <clears throat> it's a sobering account. Did you notice how often it's repeated that everything died? It's making sure we get this. Nothing survived outside of the ark. There was one place that was safe. <clears throat> what was it like inside the ark? What was Noah's life like inside the ark? Have you ever tried to imagine what it was like to live in there? I think it's good for us to think about that. I don't think it was easy. I expect it was a rough ride. The Bible doesn't tell us much about it. You know, in children's storybooks, the covers, the pictures in children's storybooks, most of them upset me <laughs> about Noah's Ark, I should say. Um, the, often it's pictured inaccurately as a peaceful cruise in a small boat with animals sticking out of every opening cartoon-like animals, and it looks like a fairy tale. And it wasn't a pleasant float with cartoon creatures. It was, it was like living in a large floating barn with hundreds and hundreds of animals. Imagine you're cooped up with the same seven other people for over a year. You better get along. first part of the, the flood must have been a pretty wild ride. I'm going to 
I'm going to read you a quote from Wycliffe Bible Commentary. <clears throat> it's talking, this is talking about chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. You go back to that where it says, On that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. And they're looking at the word that is translate the Hebrew word that's translated broken up. Enormous reservoirs of water were stored under the earth. This mighty collection of waters was called the great deep in Genesis 1 verse 2. These subterranean waters confined by creative power on the second day of creation were unleashed to pour forth in volume and in violence, defying description. It was not an ordinary flood, but a giant tidal wave that broke suddenly upon a startled populace. The Hebrew word indicates a terrestrial convulsion that split asunder every restraining barrier that had existed. It was a tumultuous breaking loose of indescribable destruction. Man cannot imagine the fury or the destructive might of the eruption, nor of the awfulness of the display of God's power to destroy sinful beings. The complete corruption of men was far worse than any of us can imagine, and the destruction was necessary. In addition to terrific upheaval from below, peoples of the earth witnessed the opening of the gates of mighty reservoirs of water above the earth. All the stored up waters burst forth in torrents, resistlessly and continuously, for 40 days and 40 nights down upon the earth. The effect of the the deluge on men, women, children, animals, plants, and the earth's surface cannot be completely imagined. It's beyond what our minds can grasp, what God caused to happen as a result of man's sin. <clears throat> I believe the events recorded in the Old Testament are there for us to learn from. I want to learn from them. And I'd like to just take note of several things about Noah and about God and see how they apply to my life this morning. Did you notice in reading Genesis chapter 6 how often it mentioned that Noah obeyed everything God told him to do? It says that in chapter 6, verse 22, and then it says it three more times in chapter 7. Noah did everything God told him to do. I'm going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Noah is mentioned in the faith chapter. Reading verses 1 and then 6 and 7. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah believed God for something that had never happened before. But when God said it was going to happen, Noah believed him. 
and he was willing to act on it. He was willing to pour his life into doing what God asked him to do. Even if it didn't make any sense going on the past, he had nothing to compare it to. But Noah believed God. He had a relationship with God. He was willing to tackle a project so enormous. God warned him 120 years ahead of time. We don't know if it took the entire 120 to build the ark, but I'm sure for that entire 120 years, he was either building or stocking and preparing. It, everything was focused around being prepared for the judgment God said was coming. He spent longer than our lifespan today preparing. How many of you have been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky? Just see your hands, huh? Some of you have been there. I'd recommend it to any of you. It's a really neat experience. Brandon, can you give me a picture? <clears throat> I think it's going to work. <laughs> we were there, I think, last year, last February. Actually, we're in February, it'll be two years since we were there, um, and really enjoyed that. It, the, what they've done is, is built a replica of the ark, going by the dimensions given in, in the passage here in Genesis, and basing it on, they estimate the cubit at the time was 20.4 inches, and so that comes out to 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 10 feet high. It's the, the scope of the task that Noah was given is just huge. Here's a picture from there, the replica they built. Uh, you notice the tower on the right, that's 40 feet tall, just for perspective. And there are some people on the left, just in front of the ark, on the path there. Can you see people there? just to get a feel for the size of this thing. <clears throat> it's huge. I, was, I did not expect uh, the ark to be that big. But it was, it was neat to, to see that. And I was amazed at what Noah was willing to tackle. Can you give me the next uh, video? Just to get a feel. I'm a little too close, but I wanted to get a feel for just the size of the ark. And go ahead with the next one. There's a third picture. <clears throat> Gives you a sense. It's, it's a monstrosity. <laughs> just a huge boat. It's fine if you want to just leave it. Um, <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 12, just flipping back to that quick. Oh, actually, I wanted... Noah was not making decisions based on what the majority of the people around him were doing. 
because the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But that wasn't Noah. Noah didn't take his cues from whoever was around him. That wasn't what he based his decisions on. Well, everyone else is doing it. It's okay. He didn't do that. 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Was Noah a failure? I see some heads shaking no, and I'm glad to see that. No, Noah was not a failure. How many converts did Noah have? How many people joined him in the ark? Seven people. After 120 years of warning, there were only seven people, his immediate family, their wives that joined him in the ark. But I want to say Noah was not a failure. The real question is, did Noah obey God? Noah did obey God. He was faithful to what God asked him to do. People's response lies with them. It's their responsibility. Not Noah's. Noah obeyed God. Can you imagine the peer pressure that Noah faced? For 120 years, after the warning, until the flood came. The peer pressure that Noah must have faced. Noah's story tells me that numbers are not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, Peter uses Noah's example is one of the examples used to show that God can rescue you from temptation. That if God could rescue Noah in the situation he was living in, with all that temptation, then God can rescue the godly. God can rescue anyone, a godly person from temptation. You ever felt like the temptation you're faced with is too much to bear? Peter would say it's not. If God can rescue Noah, he can rescue me and you. Genesis 6 and verse 8 tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is kindness or favor. It's to stoop in kindness to help an inferior. It's like an adult who helps a small child who needs to do something they're not capable of. They aren't able to do it themselves, and the adult helps. That's a picture of grace. Genesis 6 and verse 9, the next verse tells us why Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It tells us that he was just. He was a just man. Just is lawful or righteous. And it really describes his relationship with other people, the people around him. Next word he's described with is perfect in his generation. Does that mean Noah was without sin? No. Noah was a human being like you and I. But Noah was perfect. It's, the word means entire, complete, whole. Uh, maybe a better word would be integrity. He had integrity. He was undivided, an undivided heart, sincere in his desire to do God's will. 
And third, the reason Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is Noah walked with God. We're told that also about Enoch. Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God took him. Noah walked with God, but he lived for a very long time. Walking with God implies a steady, progressive, a growing relationship. Noah walked with God. I want to walk with God. The writer mentions this, that Noah walked with God, because Noah's life was in direct contrast to the way the rest of his generation was living their lives. He didn't take on the values of society around him. In the story of the flood, we can see in Noah's life the kind of life that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a life of simple obedience to God's commands, trusting God for the outcome. I'd like to note just a couple things about God from this story. In Genesis 6.6, it says, God was sorry that he made people, and the New Living Translation says it broke his heart. The NIV says his heart was filled with pain. New King James says he was grieved in his heart. That word, the word that's used there in the original means to pierce. God's heart was pierced when he saw how people were living. Do you ever think of God as experiencing pain? I can't say that I do that often. But God experiences pain. Man's sin caused God pain. And that was long before He suffered and died on the cross for your sins and mine. My sin causes God pain. Something for me to ponder. Genesis 6 and verse 7 was the result of God recognizing what man had become and what he was like. He said that he will destroy man who he has created from the face of the earth. God's judgment will come. It may not be immediate, but God's judgment will come. The catastrophic global flood was caused by God because of man's sin. Scripture tells us that God's next judgment of sin will be by fire, not water. Another thing I want to notice about God is that God is merciful. Did God need to warn Noah about what was going to happen? No. God didn't need to warn anyone. He could have just given people what they deserve. Have it happen. Be done. But God warned Noah. He warned the man who walked with him and had him be a preacher of righteousness, speak to others, warn them about what is coming because God cared about these people who were against him. God is merciful. He warned people through Noah 120 years before he caused the flood. And then, as promised, it happened. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, we're told that God patiently waited while the ark was being built so that eight souls could be saved. 
120 years waiting for eight souls. I'm looking at Genesis 6, verses 12 to 14. God tells Noah what to do. And from that, I take that when I'm walking with God in obedience, he will tell me what I need to know. It doesn't mean that I will know or understand everything, but God will tell me what I need to know for the situation I am facing. When I'm walking with him, God will take care of me. So it tells me this story shows that God works through his people. God didn't have to wait 120 years while Noah built the ark, but God chose. He could have instantly provided a safe place for Noah. Here, I'm forming a bubble around you. You're going to float through this. No problem. I've got you. God could have done that, or he could have done it a thousand other ways. God didn't need Noah to build the boat. However, he chose to wait and have Noah build the ark as an act of faith. Noah acted on his faith. He obeyed God and built the ark. God saved him through that. Another thing I notice about God in this passage is that in uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 20, God sent the animals. Now, what do you, how do you think Noah felt when God originally said, you're to take two of every kind with you into the ark? If I was Noah, I'd have been going, whoa, wait a minute. How am I ever going to get all these animals? That's impossible, and it is. However, God brought them to him. <clears throat> when God asks me to do something, God supplies what is needed as I obey him. Another thing I want to notice with God in, in uh, chapter 7 and verse 16, we're told after they were in the ark, the Lord shut them in. The Lord closed the door. It's an interesting word. In the original, the language suggests that he enclosed or surrounded them. And I believe that's very true. God not only was in the ark with them, but God surrounded them, protected them. The Lord shut them in, kept them safe. God did what he told Noah he would do. In chapter 8, God, I'm not going to read it for lack of time, but in chapter 8, God stopped the fountains of the deep and the torrents of rain, and he sent wind to dry the earth. When everything was ready, after 377 days after the flood began, God told Noah to leave the ark. And Noah waited all that time. We're told two months before that, he took the roof off. And he could see around that the ground was drying. But it was another two months before God told him to go ahead and leave. At that point, when he left the ark, Noah worshipped God. And in Genesis chapter 9, verses 13 to 15, God comforts Noah. He reaffirms his covenant with them, promises he will never again cover the whole earth with a flood. And God also gave the rainbow as a sign of the covenant between him and every living thing on earth. We can still be reminded of that today when we see a rainbow. I was thinking about that a couple weeks ago when I saw one. 
So in, in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22, I want to read one verse there. God said to Noah, after Noah built an altar and worshipped, he said, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night shall not cease. The changing seasons, the cold weather that we're getting with changing from fall to winter are a reminder of God's faithfulness. Everything continues just the way God said it would. God is faithful. God judged man's sin in the past, and God will judge man's sin in the future. And the only place of safety will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like God provided a safe place for Noah and enclosed him, so God has provided a safe place for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like there is only one door in the ark, there is only one way to be safe from coming judgment. In John 14 and verse 6, Jesus said to Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's through the Lord Jesus, placing my faith in his death and resurrection in my place, that I am saved from judgment. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells us that in the days of Noah, people were going about their everyday lives, and they were surprised by the flood, in spite of the warnings. And he says it will be just like that when Jesus returns. People will be going about their normal lives. I'm going to close this morning with reading from Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is this problem, promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Would you stand, please? <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for your word that you've given us. It shows us that you are faithful, that you always do 
what you say you will do. We can depend on you. Lord, we thank you for the Old Testament that shows us how you've acted in the past. And we can know. We can depend on you to act in the future. Lord, I pray for each of us here today that we would live lives like Noah, that we would look to you for direction on how we live, not to society around us, that we would base our decisions on your word and what you've said so that you will be honored. And may we depend put our faith in you, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only safe place in the judgment to come. Thank you that we can look forward to being with you forever in the new heavens and new earth. May we live today, this week, keeping that in our, in our sight as we make choices. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.